If you have your Bibles, you can turn it uh, to the book of Nehemiah. We are starting uh, because the third week's a charm. Uh, we have been trying to start this series uh, coming on three weeks, but we will kick it off today. Uh, it is a series that we're going to be going through for the first part of this year called Revive and Rebuild. Uh, Nehemiah is found in the Old Testament. Uh, following the book of Ezra and before the book of Esther. If that makes no sense to you, it's okay. There's a table of contents in the front of your Bible. Or just flip until you get there. Um, it'll be okay. Also, the words will be up on the screen as well. Uh, but yeah, we were supposed to kick this off two weeks ago, but due to uh, illness, uh, COVID likely, uh, that has been going around, um, I was out last week with it. And um, yeah, the week before, I know a lot of people over the holidays were out, and so I'm grateful that we had um, Daniel coming in and fill in for us last week in my absence. Uh, come to find out about 10 other pastors that I was on a retreat with. We all got it. Uh, and so, yeah, but I'm glad to be back, uh, just gathered together, celebrating, uh, and man, diving into God's Word. Um, and so as we start... Uh, Nehemiah, really, uh, I'm going to do like we do every time we start a new series, particularly the book of the Bible, give some backstory, talk about why um, we're going to be walking through this. But man, uh, man, Nehemiah is a book that I believe uh, as we journey through it, it's going to be about 10 total weeks that we'll be in it. But it is a book that really speaks to the current season that we find ourselves in of the body of Christ. And I mean that both locally a center church like this book speaks to man where we find ourselves and the culture we live in and the struggles that we have uh, but also man i believe that it speaks to man the global church and so as we journey let me give you a bit of backstory and then we'll talk about why we are engaging so nehemiah uh, if you've never read it before um, nehemiah and the book of ezra actually in the beginning were one uh, they were one book. So Ezra and Nehemiah weren't split apart. It was just one story. And if you read, if you start in Ezra 1 and read through uh, Nehemiah, you'll see that it's this concise story telling, uh, man, the story of God's people in exile. Uh, but at some point, uh, it was separated into the two books that we have today in our modern Bibles. Uh, but it, it comes on the heels about 50 years after the Babylonians have come in, uh, you know, and they have, uh, man, they have taken God's people into exile. They have destroyed Jerusalem. They've destroyed the temple. And as we're going to see in this book, the walls have been torn down. And so this is where we find ourselves. And really, uh, this uh, story kind of hinges or focuses on three main characters. So if you're to take Ezra and Nehemiah and put them together, uh, the, in the book of Ezra, you're going to learn about Zerubbabel and Ezra, whom the book is written about. And then you have Nehemiah, uh, which is the book that we're walking through now. And so you have these three key leaders, but really the focus on all these leaders is on the revival and the rebuilding of not just Jerusalem, but the people of God. So Zerubbabel leads a group of people back to rebuild the temple. Ezra shows up and Ezra um, man teaches God's people the Torah. And he is required to man re learn to rebuild the community of God. And then Nehemiah leads, as we're going to see, the rebuild, rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And so you have 
these three people. You have kind of this focused effort in three different ways. But really, uh, the, the neat thing about these stories is they actually, they, they, they kind of parallel each other uh, in really some themes that kind of work through the book of Nehemiah. First, each of these stories begins by the leader being sent by a Persian king. So they are, uh, the Persian king is prompted by God because guess what? Uh, even though God's people are in exile, God still rules and reigns. Uh, and he prompts the Persian king to send these individuals to Jerusalem for specific tasks. Next, what we see throughout each of these stories, if you were to work through them, is that in all of them, opposition arises. So, so th- these people, these leaders are sent and they have work to do. And yet in the midst of it, opposition arises and that opposition must be overcome. Like we all get that, right? Like throughout life, like you can't go very long throughout life without opposition arising. And man, what we are called to do, especially as far as followers of Jesus, we are called to overcome that opposition. You see in the overcoming, as we see in this story, uh, man, what happens with each of these stories, but specifically Nehemiah that we're walking through, is at the end of each story, even in the midst of the overcoming, there's this strange anticlimactic event that happens. You see, the reality of the book of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah actually seems to end on kind of a bad note. Because even with all their work, God's people do not fulfill and keep up with the calling laid before them. It happened with Zerubbabel. He, they rebuild the temple. He brings uh, these Jews that had been exiled. They come back. They rebuild the temple. They get ready to celebrate. And God's presence doesn't man, fall on the temple. And so, man, they're heartbroken. And then what happens is the, the, there was some Jews that actually weren't exiled. And they show up. But then uh, the, the people that had come in say, hey, you can't be a part of this. You, you, you can't have any, like, y'all don't understand. And so there's this di- division, this, uh, this anti-climax. And then uh, what you see uh, with Ezra is, man, the, the, the law is stated and people, man, worship and begin following it. But it doesn't take long for Ezra to realize that people aren't keeping the Sabbath. That, that, that things are broken. They don't keep up with the calling laid before them. And so for us, the purpose in reading these uh, stories and specifically in looking at Nehemiah is I want us to see really three main things. First is that, man, this is a story that begins with hope. But, but it's hope for change. It's hope, as this series is entitled, for revival and rebuilding. Next, what we see through this story is that the anticlimactic event that happens, really what it leaves us to do is to sit in disappointment. You see, it's from that disappointment that we're left with the reality that what we need, and this isn't just for Nehemiah, this is for us today, what we need is not a new temple. It's not the rigor of new commitment to the law, although discipline is great. It is not the walls of religion and tribalism that we hope might protect our values. No, what we see from Nehemiah, what we see in our lives when we're met with disappointment, even in the midst of the overcoming, is that, man, oftentimes we're looking to the wrong things that don't satisfy. And what we need is a totally different rescue. What we need are new hearts. Really, if you look at the entirety of the God's redemptive story, that's what it's always pointed. Man, we need a new heart. We are dead and need to be made alive. 
if we're ever going to love and obey God. You see, we have a deeper need than we can fix. We talk about this all the time, right? We have a deeper need that we can't fix. Like you can't fix the need that you have. Everything that we do, when we go about it in our own strength, guess what? It's always anticlimactic because guess what? We make very poor saviors. But man, we are all about running to little wins, are we not? I'm not saying little wins are bad, like, uh, you know, like, but we're all like, there's things that, man, we run after those things. But it's just anticlimactic because we make poor saviors. So we, not only do we make poor saviors, but we, man, the bar is often really low, even in that. Like, the things that we can do, that bar is pretty low in comparison to what God can do. So, uh, over the holidays, our middle son, Jude, uh, got a new Nintendo Switch game. Uh, it's Super Mario U. I don't know if you've ever played it, but it's like all the old school Mario Bros. put together. So it's like the ultimate Super Mario game. Uh, and the couple of things I've noticed is, man, our family loves it. We have a whole lot of fun playing it, but my wife really loves it. And it's like I, like I looked at her the other night, because this is what happened on Friday. Uh, her and Jude usually play it every night, and I just sit back and watch, and, and man, you know, they, they have a lot of fun. Uh, but we put the kids to bed. Well, they hadn't beaten a certain level. And so Haley's like, hey, put that joker on the TV. Uh, and so we said that. So then I get into it and like, we're just, you know, if you die, you hand it off. And like, we're going, you know, but we're playing this thing and we get done. And guess what? Like, finally, I'm like, look, babe, you go. You're way better than me. Okay. Like, uh, like you actually, you have like a gifting for this, you know? And so she's playing it and she beats the boss. Right. And she, she, she's like, I beat it. I beat it. Jude is going to be so proud of me, right? And I get like, she's gleaming. And I'm like, yeah, he is. And guess what? He was. Like that morning, you know, I stole the thunder. I was like, hey, guess what? Mommy beat that. And he's like, oh my gosh. Like, I thought that was impossible. Uh, but we're going about it. And, and it's this, you know, in the moment, like as I thought about this and these, you know, anticlimactic things, guess what? Even though in the moment, uh, Jude's really excited. Even though in the moment Haley was really excited and I, man, I got excited because who doesn't want to beat Bowser, right? Uh, we have this moment to where, guess what? That's low bar. Not only that, but no matter how many times you beat Bowser, it's going to be anticlimactic because they're always going to have another one. But that's how we live life oftentimes. And man, our hope, you know, even as I think about that for our family is that, man, we what we want to present and what we want to run to. And even with our son Jude, while we want to say, hey, guess what? Like, look, this is what happened. That's not going to fix your greater need. You see, the good news is that we have a greater hope in Jesus. 2022, there's one thing. Jesus is greater than Mario, okay? Like he is. I know Mario seems awesome, but Jesus is better than that. And man, our goal should be like for us, like even Haley and I as parents, like we want to lay that before our children. But not only that, we want to lay that before ourselves. That everything else is a cheap imitation. It can't fix what we need. We can't fix what we need, but Jesus has and he does. He comes and fulfills what the temple, the law and the walls of Jerusalem could never provide. 
And so quickly, why Nehemiah and why for this season in life of our church? Well, Nehemiah, if you really look at it, is a story about the church. I mean, you may not say the word church, but J.I. Packer, uh, the theologian, once said that Nehemiah was a church builder. For without the walls, the city would not be protected. But the thing about this story, and if you know, if you've been in church at any point, like you've probably heard the story of Nehemiah and then building the wall and everything. The thing about this story is that the walls themselves were only a means to an end. You see, the real goal of this story is the restoration of God's people. It's not about the walls, because guess what? God has always been about a people, not a place. And so we as the church, and again, the church is not this building. You're a follower of Jesus. You are a part of the church. You see, we need to again see the hope and the calling that God has placed upon our lives. We need to sit in the disappointment, the opposition, some of which I believe has been at times self-inflicted, but has marred the church and torn down her walls in ways. And if we've learned anything from the last few years, I believe we could all say that avoiding committing to and or the need for followers of Jesus to be involved in the life of the local church has waned. We have so many outs nowadays. There was probably still the same outs then, but they just seem somewhere because guess what? We're in the now, like right now, like there's so many. And guess what? Like it's not just COVID that gives us the out. You know, social media influencers give us the out. Like you can watch church on live stream on Sunday, right? Like you can check, like you don't have to be commit. Like we, we've taken the definition of what church really is and we've made it something it's not. You see, because what society, what culture, man, and even just our tendency to run towards moralism that can be found in the church has made being a Christian something that's all about you. Opposition from outside voices, false narratives of what the church is and what it does, idol worship, misplaced values and identities have pulled us into an exile that I believe that God's calling us out of. You see, I believe that even in the midst of all we've walked through and the struggle it is to watch people choose a million other things over the church, and I don't just mean Sunday, but man, Sunday is a big mark. It's some, this is something that God wants to revive in our hearts and reveal in our lives. And so I think the first question that we often ask, the first question that we often ask in life, in light of that reality, is if we're honest, is not how does this affect the church, the body of Christ. Often our first question in life is how does this affect me and my desires for comfort, security, and identity. You see, we have we are consumed in a consumer culture. But not only are we consumed in a consumer culture, man, culture wants to tell us to isolate. Hey, culture wants to man hone in just everything to what's uh, on our phones, what's on our TV screens, what you know, what is in front instead of making us realize that that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. He wants to isolate us. 
But we're called to be the body. We are called to be the church. See, we need to open our eyes to see the better news. Because while Nehemiah is going to end on an anticlimactic event, we know the rest of the story. We know what God has built through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. And so we have the opportunity to sit and learn from the hearts of God's people in Nehemiah. We have the calling to hold on to hope, to fight through disappointment. Because guess what? The church will disappoint you. I will disappoint you. Other people in this room have or will disappoint you. You will disappoint other people. All the while, or even aside from that, we are to run the race of gospel proclamation because the climax of history has come in the person and work of Jesus. And we have good news to share. The work is finished. The battle has been won. The nations are to be brought in. And we are commissioned for this work of displaying good news. And so my question for us is, will you journey with me? Will you journey with me through this season of revival and rebuilding through the book of Nehemiah? Will you allow God to revive and rebuild in you that which might be torn down? Will you hold on to hope? Will you face the disappointment along the way and allow the one who overcame to lead us together so that we might fulfill what God has called us to here? And it can't, it's going to take all of us. If so, and even if you're not sure, you're here today, so you at least got to make it through this one. Let's jump in by reading Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, so what we see here in Nehemiah 1, is this is set 22 years after Ezra's returned to Jerusalem and established the law and been commissioned to rebuild the community of God. You see, the law was meant to proclaim to the people who they were, and then they were then to be a display people, which for us today in the church, we are to be a display people that points to the one who fulfilled the law. But look at how this story of revival and rebuilding begins. You see, this story doesn't begin with a list of things that need to be done, which is often how we seek to fix most of our problems. I mean, how do you like you? You're kind of you're the way you go about things is what is broken. Let's get to it so we can move on. I want to fix it immediately. You see, that, while that's good in theory, and I think, man, there are times where we just need to, okay, that's broken, let's fix it. 
That's good in theory, but man, I think by and large in the church, that's often bad relationally. Maybe not like in marriage. That's bad relations, relationally at times. Efficiency, probably great. There's a problem, let's fix it. But relationally, there's not care and concern there. There's no emotion. You see, often I believe in life, what we say is if it's broke, fix it. Or if it's too broken, leave it where it is and get a new one. A couple of weeks back, I went hunting in South Texas with my brother-in-law and uh, I had this just moment where I was like, oh man, like that's, uh, I just saw some of my childhood in it. So we're driving around in the pasture and I'm like, we're talking and my brother-in-law showed me stuff like, hey, what's that tractor over there? And he's like, oh, it just died right there and my dad never moved it. And I was like, oh, okay. And then we kept driving. I was like, what's that tractor over there? And he's like, oh, that one died over there. And so he just left and it's just like this graveyard of just randomness. And I was like, that's really odd. And then I started thinking and I was like, no, my grandfather's house was the same. It was just ranching equipment. It was just like, well, what happened to that? Well, it just broke right there. And so he just left it, you know. It was just rusting out and, and just sitting there. Because it, it broke. And instead of taking the time to try to fix it, at least, it was like, no, we'll just get a new one. And that's often how we live life. We, we say if it's broke, fix it. Or if it's too broken, I just leave it to the side. And I'll just get something new. I'm, if I'm not satisfied with it anymore, there is a new and better product, I'll go after that. Which is why we have such unhealth seething around us. We, we look at our own lives and our own hearts and our identities and we say, well, it's not really that broken. It's not that broken in comparison to that person, so I don't need to deal with it. Or it's just so broken, hey, I'll just be a new me tomorrow. And so we morph into this person and then that person and our identity is always changing. That's why we see such burnout and depression because and oftentimes instead of dealing with what's broken, we just say, hey, suck it up or project it like it's not there. So so many marriages inside and outside the church, but specifically inside of the church, man, uh, uh, man, are in constant states of such unhealth and brokenness. And even, I mean, the divorce rates are as equal to those outside of the church because we look at it and say, we'll just cover it up. Because we don't realize the brokenness inside of us, our parenting is, is filled with anger, impatience and or apathy. It's why in the church we don't realize, man, just our broken tendencies. We don't have care or concern for the church, so we just check the box, but we don't give our lives to it. But what we get in Nehemiah 1 is not a quick fix approach to a problem. Actually, the first thing we get is a heart of concern for God's glory and God's people. You see, if we... If you proclaim to have a heart for the glory of God, you must carry concern for the people of God. For it is through His people who bear not simply His image, we bear the image of His glory and grace. So today, church, can we each honestly say that we have concern for one another? 
in an age that says isolate, you worry about me, myself, and I. When was the last time you asked someone how they were doing? And didn't settle for just, I'm good or I'm blessed. You come to men's equip and you say, you say something like that and they're like, well, what's going on with your heart? Tell us about that. Because we know it, we, you can't do that. But when was the last time you genuinely just said, hey, how are you doing? Or when's the last time you were asked by someone, not on staff, hey, how are you doing? Because that's even a struggle for me. And so as you think about that, man, why? Because I think I probably know the answer. Why do we struggle? Well, in that regard, well, I think it's because we give little concern to other people because we're so focused on what we're doing. But what we find with Nehemiah is concern because he makes contact with men who are returning from Jerusalem. And guess what? Jerusalem is about a thousand miles away from where he finds himself, okay? Which is, noted. we're going to note that for later. But he asks them how things are there. But the answer he receives is not the one he wanted. They bring him bad news. He says, those who reside there are in great trouble and shame because the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed. Now again, while we hear about the walls being broken down, this story is not about the walls. It's about the people. God cares more about His glory and His people than He does about walls. Now while walls protect, while walls help establish and create culture and allow for growth, man, God is greater than those things. And yet, because he cares about us, man, we want to see like even with this place, even when we think about the church, man, we want this to be as the body of Christ. We want to be a safe place, a place of protection. We want to be a place where, man, gospel culture can flourish and grow. And so for the church today, man, are the people you are surrounded by infinitely more important than these walls? Are the people you surround yourself, man, as center church, like if you're a part of this local body, and if you're not, man, we want you to be. If you're not connected anywhere else. Are they more important than your comforts, maybe your plans and schedule at times? Guess what? I know. Cowboys are playing today. It's going to be hard. We have a meeting at 4.30. I didn't know, Okay. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> but guess what? As I told Haley last night, I was, the Cowboys always win because they're just the Cowboys. So even if they lose, we're still the Cowboys. We win. But they'll play again next year, if not next week, hopefully next week. What about your preferences, your affiliation? What about your disagreements with other people in the church? And I challenge you to think through your life and schedule and see where involvement with the body of Christ rates on your life scale. And in doing that, I encourage you to be honest, to be biblical, and even ask others. 
sadly, while we might not yet, while we might say yes and nod, I don't know that we live it, uh, live when it, live it when it comes down to it. For here in Jerusalem and in the same ways in the church today, God's people find themselves broken down, weary, even destroyed, in bondage to sin and shame. And yet, are we concerned? Are we intentionally concerned? Or do we find ourselves isolated in our own little worlds and with our own little lives with no concern for the bride of Christ? I want to say two things there. First, that's a two-way street. You have to, to be helped. You have to cry out for help. Some of us are better than that than other people. But on the other side, if you've been helped, you're called to help. It's a two-way street. The second thing, Tim Keller, uh, in his book on marriage, I think this relates to the church really well. He says this about husbands, but I believe it applies to everyone. He says, husbands, you can't be a good spouse until you learn to be a good bride. For we are the bride of Christ. But that's the same for everyone. You see, we need to learn more about what God means when He calls us the bride and when He calls us into covenant. The church is a people of covenant, not of comfort or when it feels like it or if you like everything about it. That's not how healthy relationships work out. It's not how healthy marriages work out, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I don't love my wife. I shouldn't love my wife. I shouldn't serve my wife when it works out well for me or when I like everything that's going on. And so with that in front of us, with that call to concern, let's look at how Nehemiah's concern turned towards a motive and active response. We're just going to read the rest of the chapter. It says this. Starting in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, listen to this, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statues and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded to your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the, na- among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. All right, so again, In learning of the plight of God's people in Jerusalem and the state of the walls, Nehemiah's concerned response is not first act. Okay, let's go. Let's get brick and mortar. It's petition, prayer, 
I love what it says. It says, as soon as I heard. It's immediate. And this is not some simple shotgun prayer of, oh Lord, bless them and be with them. No, this is a prayer as we see of repentance, of supplication, of a call to remember. It is a prayer of conviction. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to look at this prayer because I believe it says a lot about Nehemiah's heart for God's people as well as our call as the church. Because man, as you think about concern, as you think about life, is your first response to pray or is it to fix it? Mine's to fix it. Or to just forget about it. And that's the way I fix it, right? It's to... Try to be the Savior. And I want you to know, I said earlier, I don't think all of the time fixing is not bad. The problem is that we get in the way. The problem is that we oftentimes, in our own strength, we use the wrong weapons to try to fix it. Maybe your first response is not to be a helpful fixer of the issue, but to gossip and talk bad about those you see struggling. You hear something, you're like, I knew that was coming. Saw the riding on the wall. If they would have just listened to me, they wouldn't be in the spot they're in. Maybe so. But you don't always listen either. You see, complaint and slander is easy. I mean, it's sin, but it's easy. Prayerful action is biblical and servant-hearted. You see, prayerful obedience that serves others is a mark of the heart of Christ in the life of a follower of Jesus. We are called to be a people who pray because of our great concern and because of what Jesus has done for us. We first pray for others. And then we say, hey, how can I be part of the solution? Oftentimes, like we'll pray for people, but then our next step, our part of the solution is, well, just go, like, you should have just done this, Right? Instead of just saying, hey, I think this is what you could do. Man, how can I be a part of that solution? See, Nehemiah prays. His heart of deep concern for God's... He has a heart for deep concern for God's people, which was the church of his day and God's glory leads to action, not condemnation and pride-filled judgment. So today, what are your thoughts how much thought and concern do you have for the life and welfare of the church? To get closer, how much thought and I actually give the welfare of Center Church? I love you. If you look, and we, we see it later, the beginning of chapter 2, this is, Nehemiah didn't just didn't pray one prayer. This is probably likely months of praying and fasting. One writer, when pushing us to wrestle with this question, um, he asks, he says, in this day of a growing lack of commitment, when regular attendance at church can mean twice a month rather than twice a week, how committed are you to your church and how prayerful are you about its well-being? Richard Lovelace, uh, he wrote a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, and he describes that throughout church history, whenever a problem arise, people's God, people of God would pray and, and they would see revival happen. He, Lovelace argues, though, that around the end of the 19th century, people stopped doing that. There was no action. There was no humble and concerned prayer. 
People stopped praying and started having meetings to try and fix it or started placing argue, started arguing and placing blame. They stopped praying and yet prayer is the greatest manner by which we proclaim dependence upon God. That's what Nehemiah understands and it's what we need to put to memory. The first thing Nehemiah understood is that God's people found themselves in a hopeless place. I mean, in life, we constantly, there are many times we find ourselves in a hopeless place. But the other thing Nehemiah knew, which is why he prays, is nothing's beyond God's power to revive and rebuild. Church, while the walls seem broken down, while, man, it has been a struggle, while, man, it is a battle at times, man, to want to show up and continue on, man, God cares about His bride. And He's called us to care about His bride. And nothing's beyond His power to revive and rebuild. He is the rescuing hero. He was the only hope in each and every story. And so he prays. But let's look at the content of his prayer. First, we see throughout his prayer both adoration and this reminder to God of he, that he is a covenant-keeping God. He says, God, you were great and awesome. Well, what he's doing there is he's saying, God, I depend upon you. You are the only one worthy of worship. You are the only one that we can turn to. Next, he says, man, God, you keep your covenant and your steadfast love, even in our failure to uphold it. You see, Nehemiah knew that God gives attention to the cries of his people. We see that all throughout the story. But this is not just a reminder of who God is and what he's done. This prayer also contains confession. Nehemiah cries out in repentance. Verse 6, he confesses the sins of the people, but then he says, we have sinned. Jerusalem is a thousand miles away. He, like, Jeremiah is not connected. Like, they, they are the ones running from God in Jerusalem, right? They, it would be very easy, and I think we can tend to do this, is discon- disconnect our sin, or, or, or our, the sins of others from ourselves. Man, when one part of the body is hurting, guess what? It's still a part of the body. He includes himself in the confession because he knows that it's not just for their sins he prays. He knows that he has sinned as well. His concern is not just because of what he hears, but due to his understanding of God's people being a covenant people and that he is included in. And so he bears part of the blame. And the same holds true today. The sins of the church are not just the sins of others. We bear part of the blame. But are we humble and willing to admit it? We all carry disobedience in our hearts. You and I are all part of the problem. And repentance is a mark of health in the life of the follower of Jesus. And so today, as you think about, man, the struggles of the church, what do you bring to the table? And then the last thing we see is we see this heart of conviction. Now, our common thought when we think of conviction is being convicted of sin, shame, guilt. But that's not what the, that's not the conviction we see here. Conviction here is the heart of Nehemiah's response that shows that he believes that God will keep his covenant promises. For while they find themselves scattered. While we find ourselves scattered at times, we can turn to him and he will gather his people together. 
For God is the rescuer that redeems by his great power and strong hand, not ours. I want you to note this conviction has also come in the knowledge that, that uh, he is not alone in this. For he, he says, while I cry, Nehemiah says, while I'm praying this, man, I know there's other people praying this. This gives him boldness to ask for God to use him and give him success in the eyes of the king. Man, are we crying out and living lives built upon the same conviction? You see, what you grasp for shows the convictions you have towards God and His work or lack thereof. And so today I have to ask, do we each hold the same concern for the state of the church today? Do you today hold concern for the state of Center Church and the people of the body? And in response, how are you praying? And today, are you in it for the long haul? I was putting the sign out today. And man, we got that sign when we started and it's like six and a half, almost seven years old now. And it's starting to fall apart a little bit. And I was just like, man, like that, like, it, you know, some things are broken, right? Like there's some things that need fixing. And I'm sitting there like, you know, I just like slap the sticker back on. I'm like, that'll eh, make it another week. And like, as I think about that, man, like I also celebrate, man, we're, we're like six and a half years in. Praise God. Are you in it for the long haul? Or are you in it just as long as it works out for you? As long as, you know, we meet all the preaching requirements or, you know, all the other list of things. Or are you in it because you're like, man, I'm in a relationship with these people. I'm a part of the covenant family. And I'm in it. And will we pray? You see, prayer in the book of Nehemiah is key, which is why it begins the way it does. One guy regarding this book said that prayer is the most eloquent expression of our priorities. And it is also the way we express our dependence upon God. And so if we want to see change, let us set our priority to pray and ask God to give us success as we depend upon Him. Again, the story of Nehemiah and the story of our lives as followers of Jesus is not about the walls we build, but about the people of God displaying the hope that is found in the glory of God's redemptive story. You see, the world around us is in need of revival and rebuilding. Let us cry out and allow God to use us. That we would live lives that are marked by worship, confession, and conviction. That while we cannot, God can and He is. And so that's what I want to invite you into. Amen. As we move through this year, that we would be a people that really say, man, wrestle with the concern that we have for one another, for God's church. And while it's messy, man, it is beautiful. And it's His bride. And as you wrestle, that you would just maybe lay down Certain things and say, okay, I'm just, God, I'm going to trust you. That if you have complaint, that you would also have solution. But that we would be that kind of people. I want to invite you also, we got a bunch of these copies. I, I gave a few of these out to some people just to read before the new year. And 
Uh, I, I want to say up front, while I don't 100% endorse everything uh, that this book says, uh, there's some really, really good stuff about what it means to be the people of God. It's called Rediscover Church. Uh, there are free copies out on that thing. If you want to read it, grab it. Uh, I know Rich said he would love to talk to people about it. So uh, he said he'd be willing. Uh, but man, it's just a great resource. Um, yeah, to talk about what that looks like. Um, yeah, that's what we're after this year. That we would be that kind of people, the people that are concerned about the body of Christ, that are prayerful. Uh, so I'm going to have Brett come back up. Man, I want to invite you uh, to respond. I invite you to man wrestle with some of those things and maybe where your heart's at with that. And maybe some of that is like laying down just the, the desires of self and, and, and saying, God, just, you know, just use me. Uh, maybe it's saying, no, man, I need, you know, I've allowed priorities to get out of, out of whack. And man, God, I need you to center me. Um, and so I invite you to do that. I don't want this, I don't want you to leave here and say, okay, I gotta have a list of fifteen things that I've got to do to be a better church, you know, church partner. Um, and I just ask you to pray. Say, God, give me the desire. Open my eyes. Um, the other thing, man, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come and share in communion today. And as we share in communion, I want you to be reminded of what did Jesus do when he uh, was headed towards the cross. And before he went, and he prayed. Prayed. And what did he ask? He said, God, if there's another way, let it be the other way, but not my will, your will. And in your life, and we pray the same things. God, you know, when it comes to and following you, not my will, but your will. So Jesus, we thank you that you've given us your word. God, we thank you that we can. Uh, look back on stories long ago and see uh, your redemptive plan, but also, God, we can see uh, the way you're working even today. Lord, I pray that, that we would be a people that, um, uh, that, that man, act uh, man, as a unified body. And that we would commit our lives to the local church. Not for the sake of growing the brand of Center Church because we don't want to be a brand but for the sake of proclaiming Your glory to those around us. That we would be good neighbors to this city because uh, we, uh, man, have concern for what Your concerns are. Give us a heart and passion for one another because uh, it is rooted in a heart and passion for You you have brought us in, that you have given us life. May we actually live in Jesus' name.